Welcome to the free sermon podcast of the Potter's House Church in Virginia Beach, affiliated with Christian Fellowship Ministries. Our vision is winning souls, making disciples, and planting churches. It's Monday, and we are posting an instant classic for your inspiration. This message may come from anywhere around the globe, but is sure to stay with you for years to come. Make sure to subscribe from wherever you're listening to continue hearing life-changing messages. If you like what you hear, please support World Evangelism by subscribing to the premium version of this podcast for even more sermons. Links are in the show notes. Enjoy today's sermon. The late 1800s in Pennsylvania, there was a child born to a uh, wealthy black family by the name of Theophilus Syphax. His grandfather was the first black millionaire in America. Age 22, he's just about to enter into university. His wealthy grandfather died, and according to the terms of the will, he got no money. And so Theophilus Syphax weighed up his chances in life and decided that his life would be a whole lot easier if he were white. He was very pale-complected, had olive skin. And so he changed his name to John McKee. He ordered his family to never visit him again. And for the next 45 years, he lived as a white man. Married over the course of his life. He married two white women, had children to them, divorced them. At age 67 years old, he's sick. Very ill in the hospital, and he sees an ad in the newspaper that his grandfather's estate had never been fully dispersed. This is in 1947, and the ad said, if there are any living grandchildren, that they would receive $800,000. This is in 1947. And so at age 67... John McKee claimed, finally, I'm actually black. And now he had to set about proving his heritage, which was black, that he had denied for all these years. Very ironic, he died before he could do that. This set off a court fight between his black family and his white wife. They fought over the money. In the end, the judge awarded it to none of them but instead gave it to the Catholic Church in Philadelphia. They used this money to establish a, a, a trust fund for, to fund scholarships for fatherless boys, and it's called the John McKee Scholarship Fund. But it was not named for this man who claimed the name John McKee, who denied his heritage, but rather for his grandfather, who proudly fought in the Civil War as a black man, so that other people could be free. Now that's a very powerful illustration because it brings out the truth that I want to talk about and that has to do with genetics. The scripture that we're going to read is the conversion of a man named Saul. And the reason why I'm looking at it is not only is it the time in which he got saved, but it is also in which he was the time in which he was called into the ministry. And there are many men in the Bible that God does not record the details of their uh, calling, but God does record this. 
because there are fundamental issues for every person if you're going to minister it is the DNA of ministry if you will the genetics of ministry and God says this must be in every person I want to preach about the genetics of ministry because these are things that God wanted Paul to stay true to his spiritual genes to the end of his days read with me in Acts chapter 9 verse 1 the Bible says, And Saul, yet breathing out to threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest, desired from him letters to Damascus and the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they be men or women, that they might, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. Suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. He fell to the earth and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I'm Jesus who you persecute. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. He trembling and astonished said, Lord, what will you have me to do? And the Lord said to him, arise, go into the city, and it will be told you what you must do. And the men which journeyed with him uh, stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Skip down to verse 15. The Lord said to Ananias, Go your way, for Saul is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings, the children of Israel. I'll show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Ananias went his way, entered into the house, putting his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, appeared to you uh, the way that you came, has sent me that you might be filled or re receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. Immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales. He received his sight, immediately arose and was baptized. When he received meat, he was strengthened. He stayed certain days with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he preached Christ in the synagogues that he's the Son of God. All that heard him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem? Came here for that intent that he might bring them bound to the chief priests. But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that he is the very Christ. After, this, uh, after many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. Having uh, their laying wait was known of Saul. They watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night, led him back down the wall in a basket. The genetics of ministry. I want to begin. The first gene that is involved in ministry is the gene of trust. There is an ancient battle that we see as old as mankind. It's the battle of lordship. Very simply that God wants us to face the fact that he is God and we are not. That literally God is wiser then we are unable to make choices in our lives. The garden, he told them, you can eat as much as you want from every tree, but without explaining himself, he says, if you touch this tree, I'll kill you. This is, uh, you can look at it a lot of different ways, but God is reserving. This is his right as God. He was, this is a visible way of saying, I call the shots. I'm God, you're not. This tree will demonstrate that you believe that. And so actually what God is wanting them is the issue in our hearts is the issue of trust that we depend on God and not on ourselves. 
Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8 says, But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in God. Now, our problem, however, is that we are allergic to trust. And as human beings, we try to arrange our lives in such a way so that we do not have to trust God. Doesn't mean that we hate God, but we do not want to have to trust Him. The children of Israel, God is, he has a plan to feed them in the desert. It's called manna. Each morning, food would miraculously appear on the ground. And God gave a command through Moses, says, warn them that they don't hold any back or literally that they don't store any up because God knew people. Sure enough, he knew what would happen. I don't know how this was. Maybe it was the wife who began to talk to the husband. Honey, what happens if there's no manna tomorrow? We got mouths to feed. And then what happens? We raise these kids, and someday they're going to hate God because they're going to say, I remember a time there was no manna. Honey, what we need to do, why don't we just store up two or three weeks' worth just in case God doesn't come through? This is what they do. The Bible says it breeds worms and it stinks because God would not allow them to circumvent trust. In the ancient world, they were polytheists. They believed in many gods. Either they had one God for every need, a God for sex, uh, crops, a God for war, a God for every need that you had. Or the other way to look at that is that just in case one God doesn't come through, I can always appeal to another one. And so I don't know if you appreciate how radical this was when God's people came and I said, and, and who is your God? Jehovah. And that's it. And what happens if Jehovah doesn't come through? Well, there isn't any plan. Because this is what God is wanting. He's wanting trust. What we want, however, is we want options. Pastor Foley preached, talking about addictions, but he was talking about the fact is we want other options besides God. That goes right across the board from addictions to disobedience to the call of God. What we want is to be able, no, we don't want to say, God, I hate you, I'm going to be a Satanist. I want to serve you, but I do not want to have to go on the line to where you are my only option. So I want you, but I want to hedge my bets. I want to make sure that I have, whether this is my education or a trust fund or retirement or a business or something else, a trade. And so here's what happens in a conference setting like this is you have people that will not respond to the call of God. People that will not leave their church in Pioneer. People that will not go overseas. In an offering, there were people God dealt with you and you would not do what God told you to do because in your mind you said, but with the needs I face when I get home to give that, that would take a miracle. Yes, that's the point. And so coming back to our scripture then, Here's the DNA, and God wants to give him a visible lesson. It's not lifting your hand at a conference. God knocks him off his horse, blinds him, and Saul cannot fix it. Verse 6 says, it will be told you what to do. 
God deliberately does not reveal the whole plan to Saul. You just go to Damascus and you're going to find out what you... God, give me a clue here. I'll start working on it. And for three days, the Bible says, he can do nothing but sit there and pray and wait for God. Because God is forcefully impressing something upon his soul. Listen to me. God arranges life deliberately so that you and I have to trust him. We try to evade and have plan B and we got another little secret stash and just in case, but God arranges it. He takes the children of Israel and traps them at the Red Sea. Mountains and water and an army. We can do nothing but what? But trust God. He takes them into the desert where there's no water, where they have to trust God. He brings them to water that is bitter, where they have to trust God. And manna is a 40-year lesson in daily dependence. You know, the problem that many of us have is that we were raised on TV. And on television, everything can neatly be resolved Nuclear war can be resolved in less than an hour with commercial breaks. <laughs> and this gives a very false view of life. Here God, he knocks him off his horse and he's blinded and he can't fix it. I want to say something to you. In life, God is going to bring you, he is going to bring me again and again to situations that cannot be fixed. There is nothing that you can do to fix this. This is life, all of life, but this is especially true of ministry, whether we're talking about family problems, sometimes it's problems with children, maybe it's conflicts with other people, maybe it's people problems in the church. You ever have people, they come to you and say, Pastor, what's going to happen? I don't know, I'm not God. I don't have the crystal ball. What's going to happen is that you're going to wait. You're going to trust. You're going to see what God does. The problem in human nature, think about Saul. He's an intelligent, articulated, he's a hard-charging, motivated man. Listen, for a person like that, it's very difficult to face situations that you can't fix. Because what we want to do is we see something, we want to smash it. Like the old country western song, Quick Mama, Get a Hammer, There's a Fly on Daddy's Head. <laughs> that would do it. But I don't think Dad would appreciate it. The first week when Lisa and I and Emily moved in 1997 to South Africa, very first week, I'll never forget this. I opened up the paper, and uh, in there they are discussing in, in small detail here, Two men are in a shabin. This is literally a bar that's located in a tin shed in a shack. And the newspaper said they started arguing over a girl. One guy, yeah, hey, I kill you. Said, Come here. And the other guy just pulled out a gun. He said, you shut up or I'll shoot you. And so the guy left. He thought that was resolved. And the newspaper said that the other man went home and he got a hand grenade. And he came back and he threw it. This is a tin shed. Argument over. <laughs> but there's nothing left. 
Isn't this the problem? There's some of you, you're in ministry right now, and right there is the problem in your ministry. Is because you come up, and listen, I'm not talking about, you know, fornication has to be dealt with. There are things that you have to deal with and sort people out. But there's a lesson that God gives Saul, that in ministry there are things that you will not be able to fix in your own power, in your own strength. And if you do so, you're going to wind up doing greater Damage. What do you do with situations you can't fix? Number one, you do what God told you to do. Verse six, he said, go to Damascus. Number two, you do what you can. There's something else. Maybe God didn't specifically reveal it, but you can do something, then do that. In this case, he prays for three days. And thirdly, we have to trust. I was reading about, a. a there's a pastor. He was learning to fly, and he's describing... Learning to fly, said the instructor took him up very, very high, and all of a sudden he plunged the plane down and took his hands, and he said he folded his arms like this. And he said that the, the, it was so steep that the engine cut out. And he said, first of all, my brain froze. I was in terror. I, and, and I'm waiting for him to do something. And he's standing there with his arms crossed. And finally, he says, I got my wits together, remembered what he had taught me. I got, and he said, when I got it under control, he said, I began to scream at this man. How dare you? How dare you do that to me? And he said, the man just looked at him calmly, and he said, there is no situation that you can get this plane into that I cannot get it out of. Now, if you want to learn to fly, son, take it up and do it again. Do you know what? Living for God is a lot like that. God says, come. We have this romantic, the love boat. And we get in this situation, we're going, God, how dare you? He's not wanting you to have plan B. And a way out. He's wanting you to trust. As a matter of fact, there are some of you here that God deliberately removes other options. The Bible says, the book of Deuteronomy 32, 11, like an eagle stirs up her nest, flutters over her young, spreads her broader wings, takes them, bears them on her wing. This is a picture of God. Picture that the nest is feathered. It's very good. And Mama Eagle will begin to remove some of the feathers some of the soft comfort of that. And it, now the twigs and the sticks are beginning to poke. It's not as comfortable as it used to be. But the mother eagle is helping. The Bible says that's what God does. Then the mother eagle takes them up on her wings and they're flying. They're enjoying the view. And all of a sudden she dumps them off so that they have to flap and fly. Listen, that is what it's all about. God marks him. You cannot fix this. And all of your ministry, you're going to have to learn this. You're going to have to trust God. There's a second gene. That's the gene of relationships. There's a mistake people like Saul can make very easily. You read any of his intellectual arguments, the, the reasoning he had in Scripture. This man must have been an absolute genius. He gives his qualifications of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, trained by Gamaliel, a member of the Sanhedrin. This man was a very sharp man. And so God wants to mark him for calling and ministry. 
it would be easy for someone like that to come to the conclusion, you know what, I don't really need other people. Someone that has as much ability as me, I don't really need people. And so in his calling, God deliberately blinds him and leaves him helpless on his own. He can't fix it. He has to have the help of other people. Because this is the second component of all ministry. God is marking him for all of his life. Number one, we need people to help us get where we need to go. Verse 8 says, they led him by the hand and they brought him to Damascus. The human tendency of the heart is to independence. For whatever reason, whether that is because of nationalism, tribalism, whether because of our abilities, whether that's because of conflict, we want to be independent. Fine, fine. I'll just do it on my own. But God is marking him with something. Richard Daly Sr., for 21 years, he was the mayor of Chicago. He was renowned for being very difficult to work for. He had a speech writer. He used to write most of his speeches. Came and said, Mayor Daly, I need a pay raise. And Mayor Daly went off on him. He said, you know what? You're getting paid more than enough already. And he said, you know what? No, you're not getting a pay raise. He said, it should be enough that you work for a great American hero like me. Sent the man out of his office, and he thought that was the end of it. Two weeks later, Mayor Daly was giving a speech, receiving national exposure. Television, newspapers are there. He was addressing a a national convention of, of American veterans. And he had a famous peculiarity is that he never read his speeches before he started. He would just get up and go for it. And he begins making his speech. He says, veterans here, you've been neglected. So I care for you. And as a matter of fact, from today, I'm proposing a 17-point plan that's going to involve local, state, and federal government. We are going to solve the problems of the veterans. Now, by this time, this is pretty ambitious. People are sitting up, what are these 17 points? And as he flipped the page over, he looked, and all that was written there was, you're on your own now, you great American hero. Number two, you need someone to impart into you. Thanks again for listening to the free version of the VBPH Sermon Podcast, where we post sermons on Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays, and Sundays. We also have a premium version of this podcast, which posts sermons and interviews every single day of the week. So why would you want to subscribe? I'm glad you asked. I have five reasons for you. Number one, on the premium version, we post full versions of Testimony Tuesday, Pastor Campbell Thursday, and Study Day Saturday. If you'd like to hear those episodes, then subscribe now. Reason number two, uninterrupted listening. We remove all ads and all extraneous content from our premium feed. Reason number three, premium episodes always release six hours earlier than the free version. If you're an early bird, it's a great reason to subscribe. Number four, 
Our subscribers will gain access to our sermon chat group on WhatsApp, where we interact directly with listeners around the globe. If you'd like to chat with other premium subscribers, subscribe today. And finally, every dollar we raise goes to world evangelism. This is the best reason to subscribe, because you are helping us launch churches all around the world. We don't put one dime in our pockets. Everything that we raise from this podcast will go directly to Thursday night of Chandler Conference. So please subscribe today by using the links in the show notes below. Thanks. So as you go to Damascus, you're going to hear this. You just heard from God. I wonder what he was expecting. What's going to happen when God tells me what I must do? And the Bible says in verse 17, Ananias shows up and says, Brother Saul, the Lord sent me. You can receive your sight and to impart to you the Holy Spirit. Now, you know human nature, there's something about human nature that we say, so you mean to say that I got to get it from you? Is that what you're trying to tell me, that I can't get this on my own? You mean I can't talk to God just like me and God? What do I need you for? Why do I need a man? Who are you? Are you the grand poobah? I mean, you know, come on. Did they send the top dog here? No, the Bible says he was a disciple. Amen, Ananias. A disciple? Me? Do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? And I need you, Mr. Disciple, to give me something that I don't have. And I can't get it without you? That's exactly right. Tremendous picture there of a pastor, of a discipler. Because it is through this man... This is how he's going to get healed and directed and empowered. But human nature resists this. Well, the problem is the man who's going to impart to me, I have seen a flaw. A flaw. I cannot follow a man with a flaw because I have no flaws. Or maybe there's a violation. So we say, you know what? No, 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 no. Normally I would have to receive, but... No, no, that's over for me. I don't need anybody anymore. But God is in, this is DNA of ministry. You have to have somebody impart to you. You cannot get it yourself. There's a third thing is there are going to be times when you need people to protect you. There are times in life where, or when if you are on your own, you are not going to survive. Verse 23, some Jews made plans to kill Saul. We were asking Pastor Mitchell at breakfast last week. We're talking and recounting some of the famous healing evangelists and great men of God from the 1940s and 1950s. He was talking about the impact that T.L. Osborne had upon uh, his own life and ministry. And our question was, how did they get so far off? T.L. Osborne, you ever seen any of his books? This man had over 100,000 people in a healing crusade in Holland. You get 100,000 people to crusade in Holland, you got something going on. Miracle, radical, paralysis, and cancer, and blind eye. You see the incredible work. He came back to America, you know, and, and diverted away from that. He spent much of his later years selling vitamins and health food supplements. <laughs> health food. You prayed for paralyzed people and they got out of wheelchairs. And now you, and the Lord wants you to have this vitamin. <laughs> Does that not strike you as odd? 
And our question was, how did they get so far off? And he said, because they're a law unto themselves. They didn't have anybody preaching to them. They didn't have anybody saying, bro, <laughs> that's whacked out. What are you doing? They didn't have anybody to discipline them or to correct them or to challenge them in any way. Verse 25 says they had to let Saul down in a basket. Thank God he survived and went on to further usefulness. You know, the problem is there are people that resent this element. They resent the fact that you dare would speak to them. Is he preaching to me? Maybe I am. That you would dare challenge and restrict and speak to me in any way? They resent that. Listen, dude, if you're on your own, someday you're not going to survive. Here's Saul on the wall. Saul, you're so hot. You're a Hebrew of the Hebrews, but dude, if you don't have somebody with you, you're dead. And we have watched over the years that men have stood on this very platform, on the wall of destiny, and they strapped on their Superman red underwear. <laughs> and they said, I don't need no stinking pastor. <laughs> the Bible says they put him in a basket. That's a little confining. Man. And we've watched men, they've made their own basket, haven't they? I don't need the fellowship basket. I'll make my own basket. But they got nobody to hold the ropes. You won't make it. But this is a lesson that Saul, he learned very well. Read his letters, they overflow with gratitude for people. He lists and greets and thanks people. The terms that he uses, here it is in his DNA. He got it. If we're going to minister, not only do we have to trust God, we have to have other people. There's one last gene, it's the gene of miraculous power. We're going to have to be honest for a moment. We have to face the difficulties of ministry. You want to preach the gospel, I will tell you bluntly, what we are called to do is really, really hard. I'm not going to gloss over that. Right from the beginning, verse 16, God speaks to Ananias and says, I'm going to show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6, 4, and 5, talks about his life. He says, we patiently endure troubles, hardships, calamities of every kind. We've been beaten, put in jail, faced angry mobs, worked to exhaustion, endured sleepless nights, gone without food. In another scripture, he lists the shipwrecks. And then, and on top of all that, I've got to take care of all the churches. In May, I was with Pastor Paul Stevens in Walthamstow at the UK conference. So enjoyable on the Thursday, on the Friday night, they're announcing new churches and they're, they're exuberant. They announced the couple. I mean, these people are jumping on the chairs. They're screaming. I mean, these people are absolute celebrities. They're walking down, they're cheering, they're clapping. I leaned over to Pastor Stevens. I said, this couple probably should record this because they're going to need this later on. (laughs) 
There are difficulties and disappointments and setbacks, betrayals and financial troubles. The strategy of hell in all of those things is to get our focus onto the difficulties and off of God. Like the ten spies, they came back carrying one bunch of grapes between two men. It's so big, but they said, but the walls and the giants, there's enemies and obstacles, and we are not able. Lately, I've been spending a lot of time with pioneer pastors. They've been some ask them questions. I've said over and over again, I believe the most common mistake pioneer pastors make is that they measure God by their circumstances. You know what we do? Is that we determine, based on our circumstances, who can be saved. We pull out our handy atlas. We're looking, who can be saved? Let's go through the atlas and see. But we say, but you know, here, there, it's just too dangerous. They can't be saved. But the problem is this place, it's just too perfect. They have everything. They can't get saved. Let's see. In this place, there's no money. They can't be saved. You can't have a church where there's no money. But in this place, they have too much money. So I guess what we need then is a place that is sort of moderately poorly rich. And in this place, they're all ethnics. You know how hard it is to break into ethnics. They can't be saved. They just stick to their own. But in this place, they're all white. White people can't respond. We know that. So what we need is someone sort of whitishly ethnic. And on and on and on. Here, they're too transient. Everybody's moving. There, they're too settled. No one ever moves. And let's not even talk about witchcraft. Oh, oh, the demons, the demons. Do you know why it's not working in my city? The demons are big. You know, the brother was talking about his church grew. You know why? Because the demons aren't as big as our town. What you're looking for is the city with pygmy demons. Hey, we're bad, but not that bad. And finally, after measuring and measuring, measuring, based on circumstances, we calculate and come to the conclusion, in the entire world, I believe, there are only 17 people that can be saved. No, scratch that, the Baptist just got all of them. No one can be saved. This is what we do. You know what people do? They come to an incorrect interpretation. They have something bad happen. Listen, man, life is tough. Ministry's tough. But they interpret that wrong. Pastor Mitchell told us a fascinating story the other day. Any of you that were around, I don't know if you'd remember this. There was a time when we only had one man in the whole fellowship that preached healing crusades. He was the healer. Any crusade, you called on him because nobody else had the gift. Pastor Mitchell said he would travel with this man and it became quickly obvious 
based on his character that it could not be because of him that God was doing this. He said he was with him in Atone, which is just outside Iloilo City. Many years ago, Pastor Mitchell's preaching the uh, conference in the morning. This man is preaching the healing crusade at night. And the healer came down with pink eye. So Pastor Mitchell, I have a look at his life. He said, I can do that. I'll preach it. That night, there was a typhoon that came through, wiped out the outdoor crusade so they couldn't have it there. So they moved into a garage, somebody's garage. They had 100 people packed in there. Pastor Mitchell preached, did exactly what he had seen, and he said not one person even felt a little bit better. (laughs) You know what? Listen, listen. That happens, man. You don't win every time. But he said what happened in his mind is he let the devil psych him out. And he interpreted that wrong rather than bad night. Let's try again. He said, it's not for me. It must not work. And he said, for seven years, he never prayed for the sick in a public arena again. Seven years later, he was invited to Mexico City. And unbeknownst to him, the man announced it as a miracle healing crusade. The very first night, he tried again, and he had 12 dramatic miracles. So here, listen. Come back to Saul now. God is marking him with the DNA of ministry. And it is not an accident that his ministry, his salvation begins with a miracle in his life. In this case, it's a miracle of healing. Verse 17, to receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. Listen to me, the foundation, the DNA of all ministry was going to be this for Saul. I was saved by a miracle. I was called by a miracle-working God. And in the difficulties of ministry, he would be able to reach back and say, God did a miracle there. He's going to help me again. This is all of ministry. He writes in his epistles 23 times. He uses the word able You know it, it's the word we get our word dynamite from. It's explosive uh, ability uh, over and over again that God is able to make grace abound. And on and on, God is able, Ephesians 3.20, now unto him that is able to do exceedingly, abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. Listen to me, Christianity is based on a miracle. A dead body came back to life. The father of the faith, it's a hundred-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman, and they have a baby. That's a miracle. This is so outrageous. She laughs when... (laughs) I didn't laugh. No. (laughs) Because this is the... Listen, the disciples, for three years, they watched and received and participated in supernatural miracles because this is what prepared them for ministry. They saw the storms calmed and bodies healed and the dead raised and finances provided and they were protected over and over again because it was a foundation on the inside. God is a miracle-working God. Tom Paine said to me, he said, Greg... I was powerfully converted everywhere I go in the world 
God gives me conversions. Now, why is that? Is that because God loves Tom more than he loves you? No, it's in him. It's the DNA. He understands. That is what ministry is all about. It is the God who is able. My discipleship. I was extremely privileged. I'm a very blessed man. I, was, I grew up in the revival in Prescott, Arizona. I was, I was very young, drawing mustaches on revival flyers, but I was here. <laughs> when I was 17, I moved to Perth, West Australia, and stepped into an absolute cranking revival where people were being saved by the dozen. They would get saved one Saturday night in the concert, and by the next Saturday night, they're testifying of the power of God, locking in. The church is exploding in growth, and this is the atmosphere in which I'm a disciple. See, we learn how to pray for the Holy Ghost. I experience supernatural provision and finances. I'm on staff. I'm 21 years old. I can barely shave. I'm about to go into ministry. I'm a couple of months from ministry. One night, we're having dinner at my parents' house. We received a call from a couple in the, in, the, in the church. The husband is weeping. His wife is full term. She's about to give birth. And they have just come, and they said, the baby is dead. It's absolutely dead. It's not, you know, it's not, we can't detect. There's nothing there. That baby's dead. And they said, first thing in the morning, we're taking the baby out. It's dead. He called up weeping. Now, I'm 21 years, I'm green as grass, and I go along with Pastor Mitchell. Whatever. Whatever he does, man. Listen, we didn't even pray for the sick in those days. This was a polite duty of the pastors. And he, I don't know what he prayed, but the next day they called and they said, Pastor, she's alive. That, that girl is 20 years old now. Listen, that was the DNA of my ministry. The reason why I tell that, so that when I went into the ministry and the apostles of vinegar began to tell me why it wouldn't work. You're too late, dude. That's like a Baptist saying, God doesn't heal anymore. <laughs> You're way too late. God is a miracle working God. Some of you are here, you're, you say, but my city is so... Listen, if your city honestly is so difficult and no one wants to get saved, God can bring them from somebody else, someplace else, you know. 1973, an 18-year-old girl came from Massachusetts to Prescott, Arizona. Why you would do that, only the Lord knows. <laughs> there was 13,000 people in the entire town and she came, and in the library of Prescott College, someone gave her a track. Didn't even witness, just gave her a track. And Michelle Greeley, who's now Michelle Olson, said, you know, I need to go to church. Looked up in the yellow pit, because she hadn't even been witnessed to. Looked up in the yellow, I need to go to church. And found what was then the Foursquare Church. Came in, she got saved, began to write letters and call her friends. Out of that, over the next few years, I was talking to Mark Olson the other day, they counted up that it, over the years, over 50 from their community came and got saved. More than 20 of them locked in, including Mark, Michelle Olson, Peter and Sally Olson, Kevin Foley, 
They counted up at one time. There was 20 people locked in. At one time, there were seven pastors and five pastor wives. God brought them from the other side of America? Listen, because he's a miracle-working God. That is what God can do. If we are going to make disciples, there must be a climate of supernatural power. I feel sorry for men who are going to be planted out of a church, you know, of 20 people. They haven't really had anybody saved in 15 years, but, you know, God bless you. You know, you could do it, but that's going to be difficult because you have no reference points. But there's something profound about this. In an atmosphere, we, we are experiencing at the moment tremendous favor. We had a revival. God began to help us. We had more than 200 people saved in, in just a, uh, uh, in four weeks. In this revival, had many, many people saved. But what was so powerful about this, the revival ended on Thursday night. We took many of the converts, and on Saturday, we had them street preaching. They're, you know, they're, they just got saved, man. They're street preaching. And while they're street preaching, a guy's running across the street the Prescott Plaza, he gets hit by a car right in front of them. He's laying on the ground screaming, my leg, my leg, it broke my leg, my leg. They call them, all the disciples, they take the new converts, they run over. And the guys go, hey, hey, whoa, whoa, yeah, man, we called the ambulance, it's okay. In Jesus' name. These are new converts that are watching this, man. They come, they start to strap him in, and he goes, wait a minute. Let me up. Let me up. I feel okay. Hey, my leg. I can move my leg, man. Yes. Listen, listen, listen. The reason why that's important, listen, there are miracles that God has done in my life, things that I've seen him do. It's not just as a history lesson in 1974. That's not a history lesson. There's DNA that you pull back. He's the same God. The same God. And what he used to do, listen to me. Do you know what? Some of you, when you go home, you don't need a new city. You don't need a new ministry. You need a new vision of God. Isaiah 6, verse 1, he says, In the year that King Uzziah died. Wasn't looking good, man. But I saw the Lord high and lifted up and seated upon the throne. Uzziah died, but God still rules. Listen to me. You may have battled and struggled, but I saw the Lord high and lifted up. He's the same God if he can bring people from Massachusetts in 73. Listen to me. There's nothing he can't do for you. Saul, you need to trust God. Saul, for all of your ministry, you're going to need people. But Saul, don't you ever forget, no matter what you do, do not measure God by what you're going through. Catch a vision of the Lord. I know what God did for me on the day that I was saved and on the day that I was called. I feel impressed of the Lord. There are people here that God has called you to impossible things. And one of the things I felt quickened of is buildings. There are people here, if God would call you, God has called you to very expensive places. I feel quickened to the Holy Ghost. Listen to me. God can give you buildings. God can give you land. God can do, I'm telling you by the Holy Ghost. 
You catch a vision of who God is and what he can do. Listen, if we go back to our cities and say, God, yes, it may be true that we got whipped all those times, but this time, God, but this time, God, I saw the Lord. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Thank you so much for listening to the sermon podcast of the Virginia Beach Potter's House Church. Were you blessed by today's message? Let us know. Please leave us a rating on Apple Podcast or on Podchaser. We'll be back next time with another life-changing word from heaven. God bless.